everyone. Uh, I'm Bill Reisinger, Professor of Political Science and a member of the Board of Directors of the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council. And uh, I want to welcome you all to this special presentation on Gen Z and foreign policy, sponsored by the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council and the Department of Political Science. Uh, thanks to everyone who is uh, here in the auditorium tonight, and thanks to those who are joining us on City Channel 4's live stream. Uh, thanks also to all the presenters. Before we begin, I want to draw your attention to the postcards that you should have received as you were coming in. Please scan the QR code on the back of the cards to be entered into a drawing for a free IF ICFRC t-shirt. We will be giving away several t-shirts with the slogan, connect locally, engage globally, and we'll inform you by email if you, have one, if you have won one. For those of you who are not members of ICFRC, you can join online at icfrc.org. This is the best way to stay informed about our international affairs programs and other special events that we have. Um, I want to announce that both the University of Iowa and ICFRC have adopted statements acknowledging that the land on which tonight's events takes place is the homeland of Native American nations, and we support efforts to understand and address past injustices. We thank City Channel 4 for their support in live streaming our events and for providing access to our programs, along with the U of I Library Archives. Also, I'd like to thank ICFRC's members, donors, and sponsors for their support, in particular, Midwest One Bank, the University of Iowa International Programs, the U of I Public Policy Center, the Iowa Arts Council through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, the UI Honors Program, the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization, and also the UI Department of Political Science and its chair, Professor Lai, who's going to be leading the panel tonight. After the prepared remarks are finished, we will have an opportunity for a question and answer period. Uh, those of you in the room, we have a microphone that will be brought to you. Uh, if you are watching this on the live stream, you can text any questions you would like asked to 319-600-2588. That's 319-600-2588. So you can text any questions you have, and we'll try to get those asked of the panelists. At, uh, at the end of the formal remarks. So with that, uh, uh, thank you again, and I'll turn it over to Professor Lai. All right, thank you, Bill. And thank you everyone for coming tonight, which will be uh, to this very interesting panel on Gen Z and foreign policy opinions. Uh, so I'm going to introduce each panelist before they give some prepared remarks. So we're gonna start with uh, Mike Hayes. Mike has a BA from the University of Iowa, uh, an MA from the University of Wisconsin, and a PhD from the University of Maryland. Uh, he had served as the Vice President for Entertainment Research and Communications at the Frank Maggot Associates. Uh, while he was at Maggot, he 
did both quantitative and qualitative research across the entire United States uh, and a dozen foreign countries uh, on a variety of television, news, and entertainment programming. Since retiring, he has returned to his roots in political science, where he got his various degrees, uh, and he's been, been writing on generational change and its impact on society and politics. Mike is an expert on sort of the attitudes of uh, different generations and comparing across them. And we're gonna let Mike is gonna start with a sort of presentation he's put together uh, examining the different, uh, examining Gen Z and their foreign policy attitudes. So I'm gonna turn it over to Mike. Thank you, Brian. Um, one quick kind of clerical question. How do I advance the slides? Can I do it from my laptop here or does somebody there have to advance it for me? So Mike, if you share your uh, screen with us, you should be able to advance them. Great, thank you. Um, first of all, I, I, I appreciate, um, sorry for that glitch, but I appreciate being asked for this, uh, to participate in this event. Um, this year, this month actually, marks the 60th anniversary of my initial enrollment at the University of Iowa. And I can tell you that an event such as this and looking like this probably would not have existed back in 1961. First of all, obviously the technology didn't exist that would permit somebody across the country in Pasadena, California to be speaking to an audience in Iowa City. But beyond that, the panel discussion itself would be entirely different. I am guessing that if there was even such a panel given the teaching paradigm of that era, it would been very different. It was not a sharing kind of a situation. Basically, it was one way uh, teachers, professors talked to students. Students may have been able to ask questions, but they certainly wouldn't have been active participants in an event like this in almost all certainty. In addition, the panelists would almost entirely, if not um, completely been white, male, and Christian. I don't know what the uh, religious affiliation of my co-panelists is, but clearly the ethnicity and the gender is very different than what a panel like that would have been back in 1961. And that is why I am using the term pluralist generation rather than Generation Z, because that particular term, pluralist, does reflect a lot about what this generation is, is all about. It is the most diverse generation in U.S. history in a variety of ways. In truth, there is no majority um, religion, no majority ethnicity and in this generation, and there is a degree of gender equality if not really female leadership that would not have existed 60 years ago. And for that reason, there really, because there is no majority in this generation in a lot of ways, we have decided to use the term pluralist. Now, this term may or may not stick, but it, it, it does make more sense in a, in, in a logical way than simply going from one letter of the alphabet to another. Um, 
Generation X doesn't necessarily refer to that letter in the alphabet, but it was actually about the 10th generation in American history. And because of the characteristics of that generation, that was really starting with a lot of challenges. Um, the millennial generation is, you know, rather than Generation Y, obviously makes sense because that was a generation that spanned the beginning of the new millennium. And at least we, my co-author and people that I've worked with, prefer pluralists. Whether that name will stick, I, I can guarantee you that at some point it will be something other than Generation Z. And with that in mind, I'll turn to um, what the characteristics of this generation are. First of all, you can see that the population of current generations has varied over time. Obviously, on the right side of the graph, uh, mortality is taking its toll, and the older generations, the silent generation, of which I am a member, and the GI generation, the greatest generation, um, are, are beginning to leave this earth. And so that will account for some of the small size in that generation. But with the younger generations, you can see that some are bigger and some are smaller. Uh, generations are not all of the same size in terms of their numbers for a variety of reasons. Uh, for one thing, uh, people in different generational eras, different eras of history, have somewhat different attitudes toward children and family formation. When I wrote, uh, co-authored my uh, our first books, we used as an example popular culture. And, and you could look at the kind of television sitcoms or movies and see the attitudes that people may have had toward children. Um, in the baby boomer generation, shows like "I uh, Father Knows Best" and "Leave It to Beaver." For some of you who are older, you can remember those programs. Had a very different family arrangement than shows that came later, where children were almost non-existent, and when they did show up, the family relationships were very challenged. And on the other hand, by the time millennials came along, we saw baby on board signs. And suddenly children were revered again. Um, so it, it has varied over time and people have been willing or unwilling to have children at a particular point it, 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 throughout different generations. Economics has made a difference as well. Um, family formation is slower to develop in economic bad times and bad in times of threat than it is in good times. And finally, um, there were family formation and marriage began later in certain generations than in others. Uh, when I was young, many, many years ago, the average male was married around age 21 and the average female around age 18 or 19. Now, those numbers have increased by at least a decade. And with that, it meant that families were less likely to begin having children at quite as early an age. So for all those reasons, generations are of varied sizes. Nevertheless, you can look at the different age groups that comprise these generations uh, in, in American history. We're going to see a lot of charts coming up 
that will talk about these generations, but this will give you an idea of exactly how old each of these generations is. As I mentioned, plurals are the first majority minority generation in US history. There is no ethnic majority in this generation. It is true that a plurality of the generation is white, but a majority is either Latino or African-American or Asian or of some other ethnicity. Um, and increasingly, as you go up the age spectrum, you can see that older generations were far more uh, white than they are now. When I came to Iowa, about nine out of 10 people in that generation uh, across the country were white. Uh, relatively few Hispanics or Asians in the United States at that point. Uh, and uh, African-Americans, this chart probably underrepresents them slightly, but still no more than 10% of the population was African-American. Obviously, that has changed. Also, there, this is the most, the least religious and least Christian generation in U.S. history. Um, I think there is some underrepresentation of Protestants in these younger generations because I think people, when they answer survey questions, and that's how this was done, often don't know what a Protestant religion is and will use terms like Methodist or, or Episcopal or, or Baptist or something, and that got classified as other. But even if you take that into account, the number of Christians within this generation may be less than a majority of all, gen of all, um, all people in this particular generation. Instead, a clear plurality, in indeed, close to half are people who have no religious affiliation or consider themselves agnostic or even atheist. Uh, there may be a number of reasons for that. Um, I think attitudes toward of uh, a lot of institutions are less positive than they used to be. Uh, and particularly a number of religious organizations because of their political and social stance. Also because religious intermarriage has increased and that makes it more difficult for children to determine exactly what their faith is and where they where they should end up religiously. But again, this is a very diverse generation ethnically and religiously. It's also on track to be the most highly educated generation in US history. Um, on the left-hand side of the chart, you can see that plurals, among those plurals who are 18 to 21 years old um, in 2018, a clear majority of them were actually enrolled in college, about almost 60%, compared to say Gen Xers when it was less than half. They also came in particular from parents who also were college graduates. Uh, nearly half of plurals parents are, uh, are college graduates, hold at least a bachelor's degree. At least one, one parent in the, in the, in the family holds at least a bachelor's degree. And so this generation is increasingly educated compared to other 
generations that, at least in terms of formal education, the generations that preceded it. Plurals like millennials tend to be solidly identified as Democrats. The question was asked, in politics, do you consider yourself to be a Democrat, an independent or a Republican? Those who lean or who identify as independents um, were asked if they lean toward one party or another. And you can see the majority of both plurals and millennials call themselves Democrats or at least lean to the party and less than a third consider themselves to be Republican. When you go up the age spectrum, you can see that Republican affiliation increases substantially. Um, the, the baby boomers are interesting because they are almost evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans and have been really since the generation was young. The generation had a reputation of being radical because of student demonstrations back in the 1960s. But in fact, about even then, about half of boomers called themselves Democrats and half Republicans. Once these attitudes were formed, uh, really for pretty much all generations, those attitudes, those party affiliations are likely to stick. But clearly the two youngest generations are, are at this point at least, about one and a half to one Democrat over Republican. Plurals also tilt left of center. Plurals and millennials are in fact the first two generations since the, the GI generation, the greatest generation, the FDR uh, depression generation, where actually more people are willing to consider themselves to be liberals or left of center than conservative. This is a pattern where conservative uh, affiliation, a conservative, conservative, conservative identification has existed, at least for a plurality, since uh, probably the era of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, and has persisted ever since then. Um, the term moderate is also interesting. Most moderates, the majority, are in fact Democrats who find it maybe a little disconcerting to call themselves liberal, um, but about 60% of them are actually, in fact, people who identify as Democrats. So again, this is a generation unlike uh, the, the, the uh, unlike the at least the three older generations that preceded it, that is far more left of center than right of, or at least somewhat more left of center than right of center. This particular table I find particularly interesting because plurals like millennials do reject the idea of American exceptionalism, the belief that somehow the United States is greater or better than any other country. This is a, a question that was asked by the Pew Research Center in 2019. And uh, people were given the option of saying, uh, responding, is the United States better than all other countries in the world? Or is the United States one of the best countries along with others? Or in fact, are there some countries better than the United States. And you can see for the older generations, particularly for, again, the silent generation, you can see that half or at least half 
are certainly far more were willing to consider themselves American exceptionalists, believing that the U.S. is better than all other countries, um, then, then certainly reject the idea that there could be many countries better than the U.S. But among millennials and plurals, in fact, about twice as many people, if they're willing to go to one side or the other, are in fact willing to say that there are countries better than the United States. Um, why this should be, perhaps ethnic diversity, perhaps the kind of policies the United States has followed in a variety of ways. But in any case, there is a pretty clear rejection of the notion of American ex exceptionalism among this generation plurals and, and, and the immediately older one millennials. Younger generations have distinctive foreign policy priorities. This is a list, if you look down the left, left hand column, this was a list among others that was given to people and asked for people that uh, respondents were asked in this particular survey to indicate the importance, the great importance of each of these issues. Um, and you can see that Millennials and plurals uh, obviously are somewhat more concerned with, in particular, with protecting American jobs, as long as that's also true of Generation X, more so than boomers and silence. I think in part, that's because those generations are still looking for work. They still want to have jobs, whereas boomers and, and certainly silence are people who many of whom are retired and just doesn't have the existential importance to them. But more important are issues like climate change, which is far more important to this younger generation, younger two generations, than it is true of older generations. By contrast, boomers and silence, members of those two older generations, are particularly concerned, are in this particular survey, about protecting against terrorist attacks and reducing illegal immigration. It didn't deal with the issue necessarily of migration, which I know is going to be discussed later, but clearly those issues as, as described in that way were far more important for older gener people of older generations than younger generations. So there are distinctive foreign policy concerns among uh, this, the two younger generations and particularly plurals. Younger generations also are more strongly in favor of diplomacy rather than military actions to perfect, to protect US interests. Uh, the question was asked, um, if what should the United States be prepared to do in foreign policy? Should it be prior, prioritized to make uh, diplomatic and economic efforts to protect our interests? or should we be prepared to take military action? And if you can see, the old, uh, uh, at least a, a majority of all generations do favor some sort of prioritization of diplomatic efforts. But the older generations are almost evenly divided uh, between those two alternatives. The younger generations in particular, um, two thirds actually favor uh, a prioritization of diplomacy rather than military action.
And, and so you can see that they might have a very different approach toward the basic direction of U.S. foreign policy. Finally here, um, the, we, the, the survey asked people where they get their information about international affairs. And again, this was a list of things given to people. And you can see that plurals and to a lesser degree millennials tend to focus on social media and interpersonal contacts to get their interest. Relatively few go toward the more traditional media, um, newspapers and particular the electronic media of TV news of one kind or another. By contrast, the older generations, boomers and members of the silent generation are still to a large degree relying on the more traditional means of uh, gaining information. Just as an aside, the company I work for, Frank Maggot Associates in Cedar Rapids made its uh, living for decades dealing with uh, television news. In recent years, uh, as these attitudes are taking formation, Maggot has had to develop a very strong internet process. It just can't uh, practice, it just can't rely on television news uh, and television news clients as a source of business. And you can see the reason why they've made those changes and why they're going in that direction. And so um, I, I think you can see that and, and that all of this may suggest a possible divergence or change, realignment of the paradigm of American foreign policy of interventionism, of internationalism that has really uh, been the forte and the, and the uh, chief direction of American foreign policy since the mid to late 1940s. Um, we can, on the one hand, we can see where this is going to go. I'm not quite sure, but we can see on the one hand that once attitudes are formed, um, these they don't change easily. So it may be that as plurals and millennials in, in the future are making foreign policy decisions, we may go, the country may go in a very different direction. On the other hand, I, I will conclude by saying that sometimes events can overtake uh, even some of these youthful attitudes. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a brief citation from the first of the books I co-authored that mentions uh, Iowa's very own Niall Kinnick, who expressed the kind of foreign policy beliefs of his generation, which was the GI or greatest generation. As many of you know, Kinnick was the only uh, Iowa football player to ever win the Heisman Trophy. And in 1939, the year he won, which was also the year that World War II began, uh, during his acceptance speech, Kinnick made the following statement. I thank God I was warring on the gridirons of the Midwest and not the battlefields of Europe. 
I can speak confidently and positively that the players of this country would much more, much rather struggle to fight to win the Heisman Award than the Croix de Guerre. Just two years later, as the Nazis had taken over much of Europe and the Japanese uh, imperialists had gained a huge foothold throughout much of Asia, uh, Kennett changed his point of view. He skipped going to law school and decided to enlist in the Naval Reserve and was actually activated four days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. When he did this, he wrote a note or a letter to his family in which he explained his feelings. He said, there is no reason in the world why we shouldn't fight for the preservation of a chance to live freely. No reason why we shouldn't suffer to uphold that which we want to endure. May God give me the courage to do my duty and not falter. So he obviously had some beliefs that were typical of his generation. At one point, two years later, those attitudes had changed. I, I'm really curious and interested to see what my colleagues on this panel have to say about where they believe American foreign policy is going in the, in the uh, years and decades ahead. And I thank you for your attention. All right, thank you, Mike. All right, uh, so we're gonna go to our next panelist. Uh, I'm gonna introduce her, and then she's gonna sort of answer a question related to something that you saw. So our next panelist is Amna Hader. Amna is a senior, she's double majoring in international relations and philosophy and receiving a human rights certificate. Uh, she's the resident assistant at the Political Matters Living Learning Community, which some residents are here tonight. Uh, she serves as an honors writing fellow. Uh, she's on the university lecture committee, and she is the founder and president of the New Peace Activism Student Organization, Peace by Peace. Uh, she also is an intern at the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council. So <clears throat> Amna is gonna address sort of this question of do you see uh, members of Generation Z, including yourself and perhaps others you know, being more concerned about what we call non-traditional foreign policy issues like climate change, human rights, uh, refugees, and global health compared to traditional foreign policy in issues like major power competition uh, and why? Sure, uh, is this working? Can everybody hear me? Great. Um, so thank you all for having me here tonight. Um, it's a pleasure to be invited and I hope um, what I say could resonate maybe with um, the young, younger faces I see here tonight. Um, to answer your question in short, yes, I do think that we have, uh, we look through foreign policy and think about it differently um, compared to the traditional notions of foreign policy thinking, like great power competition. Um, and I think that's because as a generation, we have virtually little to no recollection of instances in which the United States and us as Americans have felt threatened by um, state actors. Uh, in other words, there's no certain state aggressor or aggressors that we see are directly threatening us here compared to the inaction that we're seeing from our own country. And by that I also mean that we have no re recollection of where we were on 
you know, we don't remember that. I was one. People over here younger than me probably weren't even born yet. Um, we weren't here to digest the reasons as to why we entered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And rather, we've actually seen the consequences of these wars. And I would even say that they are disastrous consequences, which is why we've looked at it not towards, not in terms of, you know, these people are attacking us and threatening our interests, but rather we are in these places for reasons that might not make a lot of sense. And I think that's why I think we've looked inwardly at our own actions and the actions of other countries as they relate to mass violations of human rights, what we're doing to stop these human rights or stop these violations of human rights um, and to stop these instances of state violence like war or even inaction towards climate change. Uh, on that note, I believe that we focused less on great power competition. You know, we focused we're focusing less on who's triumphant, who is on top of the world order, who is on the, who's lower than us in terms of world order. We're not focused on an us versus them competition um, or mindset, but rather we have a mindset of what states are against hu uh, human rights and humans abroad around the world, including us, and who is not against, uh, who is not against us. Uh, and I think I don't mean it, and now this might be um, comparable to how older generations might think of it through ideologies and economic systems, like, oh, um, you know, the East, uh, Russia, for example, states like Russia, China, um, they might, you know, have systems like communism um, and other states that might uh, be against, you know, our notion of human rights. But I don't think our generation thinks of it that way. I think that we've been exposed to, um, Specific instances of state violence that aren't at the part aren't um, at the fault of these economic systems, but rather at the fault of government actions. And by that I mean, uh, so for example, instead of looking at China extending its communist influence abroad, we're not looking at it towards in that lens. Rather, we're looking at it in the way of China um, is persecuting and ethnically cleansing Uyghur populations um, in its country. So the, the focus really is on human rights and what we're doing and what other states are doing to protect um, or even violate these human rights. It's not towards, uh, you know, it's not like uh, China is uh, extending its influence and that's why we must counter it. Rather, it's how can we, um, and through our foreign policy, stop China from uh, committing these human rights to its own people. And I think this leads to also an idea of state accountability. Um, we like to keep our states accountable, including our own. Um, we're focusing more towards what a uh, country is doing, what it's acting, how it's acting, um, and how it is pursuing uh, human rights advocacy. And when thinking about international human rights, uh, I think that uh, we think more towards uh, things like climate change and the horsemen of the apocalypse, like, uh, or, you know, ap 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 apocalyptic concepts like climate change, poverty, and disease. We've noticed those, we've seen those, it's been happening right now, and we've been seeing those effects. We've been living through them as well. So um, I think that in terms of foreign policy, we look towards these non-human events and what we're doing to stop them, um, and that's, um, precisely why I think 
uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, and that's why we have such an, um, I think, an incentive to think more democratically or more towards the left because it's more towards thinking about how we're going to uh, divest from uh, endless, uh, endless wars like in Iraq and Afghanistan and more towards how we're going to stop these non-human monsters like climate change, like disease, um, and not looking at a state as, oh, this state is entirely a monster, you know, hurting its own people, but rather this instance of um, them hurting their own people. And on another note, I think, in terms of climate change, uh, that's become an important issue in foreign policy, um, just because as a younger generation, we have to face the fact that we will soon be living in a world completely affected by climate change um, and by the consequences of it. We're already seeing wildfires. We see things through TikToks, through Instagrams, um, through these, this evidence of our environment um, collapsing upon itself. Uh, and, that, and that's caused these impending feelings of doom, um, or feelings of impending doom, uh, and that, again, affects us mentally, and it, it also makes it personal in a way. Uh, so I think, in general, I think uh, we need to look, uh, as a generation, we look more towards violations of human rights as it's manifested through these non-human uh, non actors like climate change, uh, and poverty and disease, like the pandemic, uh, states in action towards these events and instances of state violence, including, um, you know, persecution of uh, specific communities around the world, and also, um, you know, uh, how states are contributing to universal crises, like the refugee crisis. Um, and wars that have been affecting us in terms of where our money is going, where our tax dollars are going, um, and how our human capital, how our human lives are being lost through these wars. Uh, okay. That answers. Yeah, question. thank you. Right, thank you. All right, our next panelist is Carolina Herrera. Carolina is a senior studying international relations with a minor in German. Uh, she's been very actively involved in the uh, United Nations Organization of Iowa. She served as president, she served as a student advisor, and she served as Midwest Campus Fellow for the UN Association United States. Uh, she also was an intern at the Embassy of Mexico this past summer. Uh, and she also has served, she also did a variety of positions during the last presidential election in the uh, local Biden uh, campaign. So, Carolina is going to answer the question, uh, kind of building off of this first question, which is, why uh, is climate change and why is the issue of climate refugees uh, so, uh, and its impact, and, and why is it so impactful and important for Gen Z in terms of an, as an issue? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and I'm happy to be here regarding Professor Lai's question. Um, the biggest, most decisive, I would say, issues that affect our generation right now is COVID-19 and climate change, right? But what we often forget is that there's going to be this refugee crisis that emerges from the climate change that we're going to be living through. And so last year, for one of my classes, we were asked to pick a specific topic for one of our research classes. And my topic was about the influence of refugees on the country's economic growth. And so even though my research is focused on the 2015 um, Syrian refugee crisis, through that research, I learned what the next couple of decades are gonna look like um, when it comes to refugee issues. And so the biggest, or I guess the most shocking 
statistic that I found was that by 2050, it is estimated that there's going to be 143 environmental refugees, specifically from countries in Latin America, uh, it was Africa, Africa and Southeast Asia. And so this is going to create a global or a number of global critical issues, right? We know that there's going to be people that are going to be forcibly displaced from their own countries and their own homes, I should say, especially because of natural disasters. We know that there's going to be competition for basic human needs like food, water, shelter. And we also know that this is going to affect a lot of countries' borders, especially the United States, uh, countries in, in Europe, and a lot of countries who simply have never been affected by such refugee crisis and don't necessarily have the means to incorporate large masses of people in small amounts of time. And so this is going to be a test of international cooperation. And it's going to be really the, a challenge for our generation to try and incorporate um, all these different problems that are going to occur, right? There's different states, it's going to be different issues. But we also know that there's no legally binding framework that forces countries or states to prioritize this refugee crisis. And so there are some voluntary compacts, for example, the United Nations 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, which has been signed by 193 countries. But again, this is voluntary, and it does speak on migration and climate change, but it does not speak of them together. So that's already an issue. And we also have the 2018 Global Compact on Refugees. And this was affirmed by the United Nations General Assembly. But this, in essence, is a document of resp equitable responsibility sharing and international cooperation for refugee issues. And so again, this, these are voluntary compacts. Uh, countries aren't necessarily binded and required to follow them, even though they choose, they can choose to do so or not. So that's going to be one of the biggest challenges for us, right? How are we going to cooperate internationally and make sure that every state follows a plan that is decided in the future? And so an additional problem that we're going to face, either if you're in foreign policy as a leader or just simply a citizen in your own country, um, is that we're going to have to change international law because as of right now, uh, is climate change refugees are not protected under international law. For example, if a, a, a refugee came to a country, um, they're not necessarily binded or forced to accept this refugee or, or provide protection. So this is going to be one of the biggest issues. Another big issue is that we need to enhance preparedness because, again, we're already expecting that this refugee crisis is going to happen. And so there's a lot of research papers coming out of it, but that's not necessarily making it a priority for international leaders. And so really the biggest thing is what are the leaders of today doing to help the leaders of tomorrow? And in the end, it's really going to fall on the shoulders of our generation, the leaders of our generation, who we elect, um, to either, and the international community, I should say, to either find a solution, or I guess find a way to prepare ourselves for this refugee crisis, as well as trying to find a solution for the climate crisis, but, and if, when it comes to it, find a solution um, and work together to try and find basically a solution for both, both crises that we're going to see in our generation. I hope that answered their question. Yes, thank you. All right, uh, our third panelist is Emilia Thorson. Emilia is a senior majoring in international relations in Spanish with a minor in Latinx studies. 
Uh, she has done extensive amounts of research while well, at the University of Iowa, working with a number of different faculty on a variety of different projects. She is currently interning virtually with the U.S. State Department with the uh, U.S. Mission to the United Nations Human Rights Council. This summer, she also did a virtual internship with the U.S. State Department's embassy in Ecuador. Uh, she's also the founder and leader of the U.I. Spanish Club. Uh, her question is related to this last slide, which is, how do you get the news and how do you see most of the people in your generation getting the news, particularly perhaps those who are not political science or international relations majors? Uh, and do you think the difference between how Generation Z or pluralists get the news and say other generations perhaps uh, influence their foreign policy attitudes? Absolutely. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here with you all tonight. Thank you for coming out. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about my own news consumption and then hopefully more broadly about Gen Z's. Um, again, as Professor Lai mentioned, a lot of us here probably have a different way of consuming media and news than those who are not interested in political science. So sort of two different topics of discussion there. For me personally, I get most of my news through online websites such as CNN, Fox, or Time Magazine. Um, I personally don't watch a lot of TV, and I think uh, as many in our generation have seen the move from cable TV and networks to online streaming services which don't provide access to news um, TV programming has really changed the way many of us access the news. So because I do not personally have access to any live TV, I cannot watch local or national news on or information on the international news. So again, I and many of my fellow Gen Z members get a lot of news through uh, websites, which is, I think, a really huge change. And as we can see from the data um, behind me, um, a really big shift in how generations before and our current generation um, access news media. Um, another a shift that we can really see and is very prevalent on the website, or not on the website, on the data behind me, is the rise in news consumption through social media. And as many of us here in the younger generations are, have seen, there's frequently news on our social media sites. If I go on my personal social media, my Instagram or Twitter or even TikTok, as, which is rising now, there's frequently different content on various international issues. And Professor Lai kind of touched on this, but I do see like a, an issue there with news consumption via social media because generally social media is short. You know, some websites have character limits, you can only get, you can't get a lot of news in 140 characters, or at least not a, a well-rounded news article. Um, and so getting news from sites like Twitter or Instagram, where there's not a lot of real information or facts being shared, to me is concerning, and I know a lot of, a lot of especially non-politically oriented individuals do like to get their media or their news media through social media sites. So that, I do see that as sort of a concern in, in the future, in that, Social media is not necessarily regulated in the way that we expect traditional media to be regulated. There's not a lot of fact-checking. People can post whatever they like and call it news, and it's up to the consumer of that media to decide if it's legitimate or not. And as we've seen in sort of recent years, leaders and organizations can take advantage of that, of the power that social media has and the lack of regulation there is on what is being said. Again, there's freedom of speech which is wonderful, but you have to be able to see, you know, look at what is being shared on social media and decipher whether or not 
you believe that to be true information. So as sort of one question I was addressing is the, the difference in the way our, our foreign policy views um, in what the difference is based on our news consumption. So again, older generations looking at news media on newspapers or on television, so generally seen as more reliable sources, again, not always. However, social media is, it, it allows the access to information very quickly, international information to be shared very quickly. We've seen this used in a variety of ways internationally, such as the Arab Spring in 2011, where social media played a critical role in advancing protests across the Middle East. And for better or worse, that has led to um, some changes in, in democracy abroad, but not necessarily the amount that protesters would have hoped for. But again, that's, social media has provided a great way to access information very quickly. However, with that comes the drawback of individual consumers needing to have an understanding of what is being shared and what the truth behind it is. So for those here, I guess my piece of advice, whether or not you care about my advice would be looking on social media and what I personally do is if I see a headline on social media, finding more research into that. Don't just read the Twitter, all the tweets on it. Um, going into real more reputable news sites online that you prefer and finding more factual information. And again, as we've seen, um, people like former President Donald Trump have used social media extensively in promoting their foreign policy views and that can be very influential for their followers, especially for young people. So um, just keeping an, keeping an eye on social media and how we're using it to consume news I think is an, an important aspect of our generation. All right, thank you. So uh, now is time for a question and answer. And so Bill, are you monitoring the online uh, people tweet? Oh, Catherine is, okay. So I will hand over the mic to Catherine unless anyone has a question they want to kick off with. I'll hand to Catherine in case anyone, if not, I have a bevy of questions, but I'll turn it over. Excellent. Liz, who wants to get the first question here? Brave soul. I don't have any yet online. What's the dangers of picking a news preference, considering the consequences that come of certain news organizations? Yeah, thank you for your question. I think that's a really, a really fair question. Um, I'm, I'm going to take it in two different ways. Picking sort of a method or a medium through which you consume news, um, which I, it was sort of how you were, I think, were asking, is really critical. Uh, I think people need a balance um, in the way they consume news. So. Again, please don't get all your news from social media, but that can be a really good way to sort of see what's going on in the world. Just kind of get a brief headline and then move on to another news site. Um, again, I find personally that searching the internet and looking at different news sites that are published uh, domestically or internationally to be a very good way of finding uh, news from the international or the domestic political spheres. So again, I think that really, Choosing a variety of news is going to get you the best sort of results in a more well-rounded understanding of foreign policy issues. Again, there are wonderful new TV channels. Uh, when I have the chance, I love to watch CNN. And I really enjoy it. However, not having cable has led to a lack of my ability to watch CNN. But still, a lot of those TV webs or TV channels also have web or online content. So making sure you have a real well-rounded understanding of where your news is coming from and getting a real, again, well-rounded 
guess the right word, just finding a variety of sources from which you get your news is going to kind of protect against the dangers of tunneling into one, one area and getting sort of stuck in how you read news. Again, we've, I think a lot of us have sort of understood this, but also thinking about the different sites you look at and getting a variety of biases. Um, if you look at a particular, if you're looking up climate change, for example, or specific issues regarding the border crisis here in the United States, and you look at a left-leaning news source and a right-leaning news source, you're going to get different information. So making sure you read sort of a variety of news to get a more full understanding of where different sides lean on the issue is going to help you avoid sort of getting sucked into either like a far left or a far right movement when you, if you only read news from one particular side. I hope that answers your question. So for those of you who are doing live stream or watching us on YouTube, you can text me at 319-600-2588 to ask your question. Ryan has a question. And I'll come to you, Ed. Whichever you um, So this question is kind of directed on what I think Amna brought up of, I guess in my opinion, maybe influenced by social media. I feel like Gen Z is very like socially and ethically conscious of who's being harmed maybe more or in a different way than previous generations. So what do you guys think of that, of like personal and ethical concerns about other people that are maybe different than you that isn't as obvious in previous generations? Yeah, so you're asking about, um, you know, like, could you, could you repeat the question again? Like, I guess I'm trying to say that I feel like people of our generation are more concerned with, like, the ethics and morality of their government's decisions, maybe sure. more than, like you were saying, just power politics and, you know, who our enemy is. Sure. And so you're asking, you know, like... Um, I guess elaborate on that. Like, do you agree? What other that. areas do you think that this is relevant in? Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's because... I, I talked about this yesterday, actually, with my residents. Um, we, yesterday, we watched a documentary called 13th. Has anybody seen that? It's, it's about domestic politics, but it's basically about prison reform. It's about police brutality in the United States uh, and how that leads to prison brutality and the deaths of, um, like, racial minorities, especially black Americans. Uh, and so... But within that conversation, we talked about um, the exposure of these deaths of, of murder, of violence, of senseless violence even, and we see that through social media. As my peer Amelia was saying, um, a lot of what we see on social media is very much uncensored. Uh, if you're living in the United States, at least, you know, it's very, um, there's no organization of what you see, you know, it's, it's a free-for-all. So, you know, sometimes you're going to see things, you're going to see trigger warnings, and then you'll see the next picture, it's, you know, someone, um, a starving child in Yemen because of the, um, because of the Saudi-imposed uh, blockade on Yemeni borders. So you're going to see that, and that's going to trigger something in you that says, like, hey, you know, I... I'm not the only person I'm living in, you know, perhaps I'm living in a much more secure life than the people that I am seeing abroad. Um, you know, it's when I was younger and I look, like read into um, racial issues and racial injustices in the United States or even, you know, in other places like Palestine, Israel, um, Yemen, Burma, et cetera. You know, I'm still looking at these pictures and it's just, it's grotesque seeing these, you know, <laughs> these, um, uh, 
dead, you know, deadly events, deadly incidents, seeing the aftermath of wars, watching videos, watching people, you know, rant on camera all over TikTok or Instagram about what's happening to them at their, um, at their lives or um, through their lives. And so, you know, just having this exposure, while it may be triggering, it may be um, in the future, it may be a bit desensitizing. I think now it's prompted us to act more ethically and to think about um, to think about others. I think it's um, ignited a bit of our empathetic skills um, as we think about solutions and how to help um, other folks around the world. Thank you, Amna. Ed, I think you have the next question. I maybe something from this end. Sure, go ahead, Mike. So, Mike, why don't you t quit sharing your screen so we can see you? You want to raise your mouse to the Second. top of the screen? Uh, this should drop. I from, thought I am. Should bring a drop down menu. I? Okay. There you Can go. you see me now? Yes. I'm sorry. If I may add just one thing to that comment, I think there's a, a, a high degree of truth in that. One of the, um, I couldn't give all the data that I had available. And one of the items in, in, in these surveys gave people a list of countries around the world and asked them if they considered each of those countries to be a friend, a competitor, or an enemy. And I will just say that um, members of Generation Z and to a somewhat lesser degree, millennials were less willing to sort the world into strong friend and enemy um, in a friend and enemy direction. It, it, it was a much more nuanced point of view. And in part, I think it's a matter of coming to conclusions about exactly who our friends and enemies might be. But in part, I think it's also simply, they're not as, um, members of the younger generations are not as willing to just simply say, well, this country is definitely our enemy and this country is definitely our friend. So they're willing to look at a variety of other issues rather than one nation versus another nation. Thanks, Mike. Ed, do you have the next question? Uh, this could be for anybody. Um, with the pluralistic uh, generation being concerned about foreign policy, but um, what means does your generation or the millennials, uh, what, what means do they exercise in order to influence foreign policy uh, other, other than voting? In other words, uh, how many, uh, what percent of Generation Z uh, contact their senator? or the representative or the president, um, as opposed to uh, just sort of letting it go and maybe voting once every two or four years. Uh, I guess that's my question. Thanks, Ed. Do you have the question? He wants to know how active your generation is in addressing issues in foreign policy. Thank you for your question. Um, by answering that, I would say that all of us, in a way, touched on how foreign, or I guess, our, can you hear me? There you go. About how our generation, I would say, influences foreign policy. 
social media is really the biggest um, method that I would say we would use. Also, we can, I would say we're very outspoken. And so we, if you don't like something, we take it out to the streets and we make sure that our voices are heard. We use social media to contact our representatives. We can, we're at the age where we can really tweet at the president. You know, I did not like what you're doing in this country. I don't like what you're doing here. And even though he probably won't see it, they, they have aides who look at these type of information on, like, what, what are people saying on Twitter, on Instagram? And so that's, that's our biggest power that we have in our generation is that we are more, everything's more accessible. We're more accessible in the sense of, of saying what we want to say, of how we disagree about this certain topic, about this certain issue. Um, and we, I feel like, I'm not sure actually, I don't know the numbers exactly, but I, do, I would say that our generation got very um, good at voting, right? We know that our generation really went all out this, this past election, um, and we might see an increase in the next couple of years, but we're seeing the importance of voting. We're seeing the importance of who we are electing. We are using all the methods we have as much as either going protesting, going to a representative's office, calling, using our social media um, for anything we, we just want to say because we can and we are able to, and that is our power that we have. I hope that in a way answers. I'm not sure if maybe uh, you have any uh, more data on what number of young people do go and um, talk to representatives, but to my understanding and with my friends, I definitely see that everybody is trying to get as actively involved as possible, especially in, in, in issues that they're, they're very uh, interested in. I hope that answered your question. So this is a follow-on question from online. So this is a good follow-on question. This is for each of the student participants, what one thing about US, U.S. foreign policy right now would you change if you could? Good question. Thank you to the person who sent this. So what one thing would you change right now if you could about foreign po U.S. foreign policy? All right. There, I mean, that's a very deep question. Um, but I, I would say my, my recent experience interning with the U.S. mission, United Nations Human Rights Council has given me a, a lot of perspective on US's, or the U.S.'s involvement in human rights issues globally. Um, I don't know how many people know this, but Donald, or former President Donald Trump removed the United States as a member of the United Nations Human Rights Council, and we are currently um, in the process of rejoining and that's going to happen uh, in January of 2020. So having a more, President Biden is working towards this. Um, he, as he said in his speech at the UN General Assembly, he's working more actively on diplomacy than our former president had. Um, however, for me, something that I am excited to see and would like to see is more active involvement in international institutions that protect human rights, such as the UN Human Rights Council. Thanks so Anna? Yeah, uh, instantly I immediately thought to myself, oh, engagement in proxy wars. If you don't know what proxy wars are, it's, you know, it's um, being involved in a war. I think, I hope this is the accurate definition from to the best of my knowledge, but being a part of a war um, or supporting, backing an, uh, an actor in a war, but not actually fighting. So for example, um, there's a proxy war, a very internationalized war in Yemen. Uh, it's between um, the Houthi or Ansarallah party versus um, the government, the legitimate government of Yemen, um, who is considered um, the forces of Hadi. But each side is backed by um, other parties. So for example, the, the forces of Hadi 
who is the government of Yemen, is civil war. They're being backed by Saudi Arabia uh, and the United States and, and this part of a coalition and other Western forces. Um, and because of this, we have, <laughs> we have funded and supported, um, perhaps indirectly, uh, a, fa um, a famine on the Yemeni people. We have supported uh, naval air and land blockade for humanitarian assistance to come into Yemen because we're backing uh, Saudi Arabia uh, as well as the forces of Hadi, but it's mostly Saudi Arabia in this war. So this is just one example of proxy wars in which um, I think that this is why I would like to change that. I think our in, uh, involvement in Syria as well, it's a huge game board of many different parties right now and it's just become all the more complicated um, of us you know, backing, supporting, secretly supporting um, terrorist groups and uh, other armed groups in that war. And that's only made it further more complicated and made it even more backward. So that's why I'm against proxy warfare and I wish we could um, change our engagement in that. Thank you, Anna. Caroline? For me, as someone who has, um, I would say, been actively involved with the United Nations, um, I have seen a decline in support of the United Nations, and I would like to see more support for it. And uh, an example I can think of was I, in 2018, during the summer, uh, the United Nations holds basically an event. It's called a leadership event and we do go to DC and this year or that year's I guess specific topic was trying to get more funding for the United Nations and at the time the former president um, did not have a lot of support and it was uh, threatening to pull funding from it and that would have been catastrophic even though um, you know a lot of people argue you know that United Nations we give so much money for it in reality um, Americans a year pay a dollar fifty you know less than a cup of coffee to support the United Nations and the organization itself does so many different, um, as, or helps in so many different aspects all around the world. Um, from climate change, it's starting to do, or do a lot of things for climate change, for humanitarian rights. Um, I would like to see just more support internationally and more, I would say, um, leadership from the United States in addressing that, you know, we need an organization like such that looks over the international community in order to, for example, like I talked earlier, the refugee crisis that we're going to see, like we need an organization that's going to look over and that country can come or can use it to come together and find a solution for this. So I guess I would say just more support for the United Nations and more leadership from the, or from, from the United States um, for the UN. Thank you. Any other questions in the room, from the room? I want to respond to one other um, previous question. Uh, which question, Mike? This was the one about participation, level of participation. Oh. Okay, do you want to share some, go ahead. Do you want to share some data? Go ahead. Yeah, because um, it was asked, what did the data show on this? And it's interesting. Clear, younger people, younger generations generally vote, for example, at a lower level than older generations. This has always been the case in uh, survey research for a variety of reasons, less involved in the community at a, a certain point, um, more mobile, finding it more difficult to register to vote. Having said that, however, the two youngest generations voted at a much higher level 
in the past, really since Barack Obama's election in 2008, have voted at a much higher level than previous younger generations have. So it's kind of a mixed bag. They're, they are um, less likely to vote, uh, for example, than older generations are, but they are more active than younger generations have been at the same stage in their lives. Also, we are seeing more evidence of direct action, um, not necessarily always in the foreign policy area, but clearly, even in the midst of a pandemic, the activities, the uh, demonstrations after the George Floyd uh, murder, where younger people were out in the streets um, at a level that we hadn't really seen for decades. So I think you could certainly argue that this generation compared to earlier, younger generations is more involved and more active. Um, I think this will relate to what you were talking about. I don't, I don't want to mess up your name, the one on the right, but um, you talked a lot about human rights, but I feel like there's always this one human rights issue that never comes up. We never talk about, I think, I think our generation just doesn't really care about women's rights abuses, um, gay rights abuses, and the abuse of religious minorities in Muslim countries in the Middle East. Like how in Iran, it's, women can't even show her hair in public, or she can be jailed or even killed. Um, gays are being stoned in the Middle East. And now with the Taliban in control of Afghanistan, who knows what sort of human rights abuses are going to happen. So why don't, or even of the bombings of churches in Egypt, the Coptic religion in Egypt. So why don't we care about these abuses in those countries? No, thank you for um, your passion towards these issues. I think they're just as important, and I think you know we should care. We should be caring. Um, I so I think instead of asking like why don't we care, I think we we, we should be asking like what should we be doing to care? You know, how do we effectively care? You know, like what what is our action call? What is our call to to protect those rights in those countries? Sure, we can um, extend our influence. You know, we can um, help influence those kinds of systems. But do we do it through war? Do we do it through losing more lives? Or, or, you know, what do you think would be the most effective solution in your eyes? I think, I think to answer your question, we, we might not care just because we don't see it, or it's just now, it's, it's kind of hidden underneath other problems that we've been seeing that, are, that have been affecting us domestically, like climate change, or even the LGBTQ rights that are being debated here at home, you know? And while we, we should be able to multitask, I definitely agree. Um, and I think the question is how we're going to care effectively. How do we show we care without investing in, um, you know, the military, like military means, military actions, um, but also do it effectively to where we can see that change. Um, so I don't know. I, I think we should care, and I, I hope, I hope people care. <laughs> uh, I hope that answers some of your question at least. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Yeah. Any other questions in the room? Okay, so I love what every one of you guys has been saying, um, but there was one thing that really interested in me, interested me because there was a statistic that I heard in a 
general politics class in high school about how Americans tend to vote very well at the like federal level, but not at local level. So what do you guys think is a good way to kind of involve Gen Z or what trends have you guys been seeing amongst Gen Z in increasing voter turnout during local elections with mayors and governors and all these local electors that really do influence and affect um, our daily lives as just citizens in our local communities? Who wants to take this one? I forgot I was involved in the campaign, I'll be honest. Um, well, first of all, I would say that just bring out the importance of who we are electing and you know the decisions they do make in Congress and in the House. Um, working for the campaign, just first of all, it, I was in awe for every single person who's ever worked in a campaign because if you ever worked in a campaign, it is brutal. Regardless if it's negative 30, you're going to go out there and knock doors. Um, but that's because we have passionate people who really, really care about certain issues. And they know that, I, I guess an advice that I got told when I started working there is you have to really believe in your candidate to be in a campaign, to work for them, and to stay with them. And that means that you really support what that candidate is saying or what that candidate supports. And so, I don't know, I'm not sure what other ways that we can get our generation to get more involved. Um, but I would definitely say that everybody has their own topics that they're very interested in. Every single person in this room does. Um, but if we can just remind people that it is really up who we elect that we're gonna see those changes, whether in our community, or we're going to see it uh, in the state, for example, or you know, nationally, who we elect, who's going to be a representative. That all starts from local movements, from local campaigns. And so if we just remember that importance of who we are electing, I think we're going to see those issues that we truly care about um, on the state, uh, in the state, as a state senator, or simply in D.C. on Capitol Hill. I hope that's maybe if anybody has any more suggestions, but I hope that's somewhat answered your question. Uh, China's like a like rising global superpower. Do you think Gen Z will be as willing to like participate in a Cold War with China as past generations uh, were willing to engage in like a Cold War with like the Soviet Union? So again, this is sort of, as you said, uh, a rising issue and something that our generation will very clearly have to get involved with as we sort of get into leadership positions. Um, I, I don't see the United States getting involved in a Cold War with, with China. Um, I believe that our generation tends to lean away from military action and getting involved in sort of a Cold War is only one step away from getting involved in an active combat situation. And the Gen Z, as um, Dr. Hayes had said in previous slides, um, is leaning away from sort of military intervention in foreign countries. I personally see our generation as more cooperative than past generations. I think there's going to be more willingness to cooperate economically or politically with Chinese leaders instead of getting into sort of a, again, a military situation. Um, that being said, there will always be tension in this relationship. Um, there are, you know, economic systems wise, human rights wise, there will be issues that will be contentious. However, I don't see the United States getting involved in a Cold War, in a Cold War situation, instead more of a situation of cooperation. 
I have something really quick to add just because I remember just recently discussing about this. Um, this past summer, I was able to go to D.C. and speak with people who work in different sectors of the government. And China was the biggest thing that's talked about in D.C. right now. And it's going to be the biggest, another big issue that's going to happen in our generation. But I actually have a... I, I, maybe I would say that it kind of depends who's in charge at the moment, because the way to I, the way that I understood it was there's two sides of what we're going to do with China. One of them is either okay we're going to go we're going to take the military approach, or we're going to see if we can work with China to combat climate change because we're going to need big power countries to come together to combat climate change. But that either comes from cooperation, and a lot of people see cooperation by losing things, or simply using the or the military. Route. So I think in the end, it really depends on who's going to be in charge at the time that this be becomes a, a bigger issue than it already is, I would say. This is a good question, Joe. Um, I think to answer, you know, why, what would compel Gen Z if that would be, if they could be compelled to join this a Cold War with China, um, what are we knowing, what do we learn about China that will get us to go to war? You know, I, like I said, I think, for example, um, the persecution of Uyghur Muslims in China, we've been seeing that on TikTok, we've been seeing, or it's been censored by TikTok because TikTok is, you know, allegedly has roots to China, the Chinese government controls it according to, you know, some uh, theories, maybe um, conspiracies, I don't know, but what are we seeing that will compel us to go to action? Perhaps grave violations of human rights by China, maybe that will get us to go to war? Um, maybe a, an attack on China? Why would we, if we do what we did with China, like we did to Iraq and Afghanistan, um, why would we invest in that? Because we've seen Iraq and Afghanistan, they're still, we're still in those wars, you know, we're still not in those wars, but we still see the consequences of those. What will get us to do that? Well, maybe perhaps China attacks us first. I think that would compel us perhaps to go to war. I don't know, because that hasn't happened in my lifetime or in your lifetime. So we'll have to see, but. So we have another question came online to a person in the audience. All right. Um, my friend sent me one. She goes to George Washington University in DC. She heard about a panel and she wanted to ask a question, but she didn't know the number. So I'm going to read it. Uh, all right. All right. Uh, all right. As many of us know who are involved in politics, we see the biases that news sources have in our political perceptions. As we've seen, there can be problems when it comes to where we get our news sources from, especially from those on the extreme sides of the political spectrum. A previous example that we have seen is the perpe perpe perpetuation of what some call the big lie, in which following the election we saw news sources on the right, such as Fox, OAN, Newsmax, and even extremist groups such as QAnon, pushing the narrative that Donald Trump indeed won the election, enough to ultimately result in what we saw on January 6th at the Capitol. How do you, how, wait, how do you think we should, oh, my mask, how, wait, I lost it. How do you think we should, as a generation, approach those who repeatedly echo the ideas of conspiracy theory and show them, and show them what they thought was right is really based in falsity and they're actually being fed misinformation by those of whom they thought they could trust on news sources they watch and online as well? Sure, that's a really great question, and I'm glad people across the country are interested in this panel. That's really cool. Um, as you said, or as your 
friend sort of pointed out, it can be incredibly difficult with the amount of misinformation being spread on all sides of the political spectrum. When you get on the far left or the far right, um, you can sort of get sucked into the misinformation that those sites are perpetuating. And I, this is, I'm not an expert, and this is something a lot of people struggle with, having you know, either family members or friends who are sort of entrenched in, in a belief system that has very little sort of factual evidence, but they believe strongly in it. Um, I think what we as a generation can do is put more effort into our news media and what we consume and being really critical about the information that we read, thinking about where it's coming from, what biases it holds, and things like that so that we can be truly informed on these issues. And again, approaching those who are so deeply entrenched in in beliefs such as the big lie can be very difficult because they don't necessarily see news in the way we do. So again, what we can do is sort of strengthen the news that we consume and put real effort as you know, potentially future journalists or those who are interested in writing if you are going into journalism into really supporting truth in the news and supporting news sources that provide truthful information. Again, I, I really don't have, any, I don't have any thoughts on how you can help an individual person who believes in sort of conspiracy theories other than by trying to provide them with more factual information. Um, but leaving sort of those people to the side, we as a country need to strengthen the truth in our news media. Um, again, President, former President Donald Trump has put a lot of sort of thought into fake news and that has become more pervasive of a thought in society. So understanding where our news comes from, being critical of it and really following sources that do have truth and fact behind them is I think gonna be an important way for us to move away from the deep polarization that we see in the news. Thank you. All right, so this question is about media corporatization, which has led to the subsequent concentration of our media consumption. So based off of a recent article by the independent media website, techstartup.com, upwards of 90% of the media that Americans consume across all platforms is controlled by six major corporations who are also looking to protect their interests. In addition to this, this also leaves very little room for independent and grassroots funded media sources. So with the six major corporations controlling almost all the media that we see in our reality, this essentially creates an augmented reality. Is there a solution to this, given the fact that we do live in a hyper-capitalist society? And if so, what is that solution? Do you have an answer for the question? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Oh, are you waiting for the question? Were you asking something? Um, so to clarify, you're asking how can we navigate this world of you know like um, monopolized news? Is that is that what you're asking? For lack of a better word. Uh, yeah. Uh, there, there. I've also read across other um, on other articles that. And back in like 1983, there, there was a, upwards of 50 companies that controlled the vast majority of the news we consumed. And that has been concentrated down to just six. Sure. Um, so how, how do we combat this? Because there's essentially six major, major corporations that are feeding us the narratives and the information that creates our opinions and uh, the, the way that our society is shaped to an extent. 
I see. I see. I think this is a great question, and I think it's something we have to grapple with, um, considering that, you know, uh, there seems to be a dichotomy in the United States. It's like CNN or Fox, you know, but maybe both are, and, and some, they're both are biased in some way, have some type of agenda. I learned in American foreign policy that news platforms often, they do, they set the agenda for foreign policy initiatives. Um, and so, what, which is why I think the important thing is um, to focus on stories, not, you know, reports. So, and I think that's why we see the um, social media becoming more and more powerful every day and like why we're using it because we see actual people reporting live, you know, them being um, participants of history in the making, them reporting on their own stories, on their own lives, on what they're experiencing, what they're witnessing, rather than having um, a, a middleman, like a news channel. So I think, you know, by focusing more on, I think, while you know we have to be careful about what we see on social media, also emphasizing the good things about social media. Like, let's turn to this person who is a journalist living in Iran, for example. What are they seeing there? What are they seeing in Afghanistan? What is um, perhaps a woman doing? You know, like hearing about those experiences firsthand, supporting journalists abroad in those endeavors, uh, rather than focusing on relying on. Uh, journalists at home, which obviously support all journalists, but um, if we want this, if we would try to navigate this and um, trying to go behind a conglomerate, um, focusing on those stories rather than those reports and just by listening to what people have to say online based on their first perspective. Thank you, Amna. Amna sort of touched on this, but the first thing that I thought of was looking at international news. There are going to be news stations based out of you know every country in the world almost. So looking, for example, at Al Jazeera, um, which is going to have a very different bias or spin than any U.S. dominated company, um, it's going to give you a really more nuanced and view of how you know not just these six companies see news events, but how other international actors view them. And I think that's going to, in some ways, help break sort of this media monopoly, as you've mentioned, with these six countries. So this is kind of a question for everybody. May I comment on that as well? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Go for it, Mike. Go for it. Um, obviously, the statement is correct in the sense that there is huge concentration. When I first went to work for Frank Maggot Associates back in the early 1980s, most television stations were in fact locally owned. There were lots of locally owned newspapers, presumably a variety of different points of view. That clearly has changed and it makes it more difficult for people to find a variety of sources of information. In addition, there was uh, a doctrine which was called the Fairness Doctrine, which argued that maintained that since the airwaves were public property that all sides or both sides of the political spectrum should be represented on various stories. It had to be presented fairly. We've pretty much gotten away from that. And so I do have to agree with the comments made here. I think people just have to search out a variety of different sources, probably online, but also a variety of media sources. Um, of more mass media sources to find that information because 
it is going to be very difficult on the existing media uh, as they are to get a variety of points of view. It, it, it just has changed in that regard and it probably makes it more difficult and behooves the individual to do more work on their own rather than re simply relying on the traditional mass media to uh, define news and information. Thanks. So I think just well, one more question and then we'll be done for the night. So go ahead. Um, so this is kind of a question for everybody and not just on the level of mass media, but on the behavior of the United States government as well. Do you think there's a greater perpetuated mistrust among our generation? Um, especially within, we look at the United Nations, for example, the um, mission to the human rights where, you know, these, um, countries are focused on human rights, but you're working with countries like China and Russia who are violating human rights every day, and arguably the United States does so as well. So, I would definitely say that there is mistrust in our generation, and honestly, I think we should always um, check the media, you know, I, like we've mentioned again, like always make sure that we're getting information from a lot of places, but it is good to mistrust because that means we can form our own opinion. We are really going out there to, f to find more information about a certain um, topic or issue that we want to discuss. So as much as I say that, yeah, we definitely do have mistrust in our generation, I'm not, that's not a bad thing. That's actually, I would say, a really good thing because it, it really forces us to go out of our way and find more information on a certain topic. And um, yeah. Oh yeah, I think there is quite a bit more mistrust. Um, and I think that's, like I said in my opening remarks, my very bumpy open opening remarks, um, I talked about how um, you know, we weren't there to see um, the propaganda that went into the wars, you know, maybe, maybe just just propaganda, justified propaganda, but another, um, nevertheless propaganda of entering into these wars. We just saw the consequences of those wars, and we're seeing climate change happening right in front of our eyes. Obviously, we see that the government is acting in a way that we don't want it to, or it's not helping us, per se, in a very observable, observable way. Um, so I think there is that mistrust. Um, granted, also considering the fact that other countries like China, like Russia, like Afghanistan, you know, Taliban, Afghanistan, um, and Iran, you know, they they also commit human rights violations. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't cancel out our mistrust towards our government and our ability to hold this country accountable as well as all countries accountable. Which is why, you know, I'm a big um, proponent of uh, thinking of it as state violence, state-sanctioned violence, because often human rights, the concept of human rights can be weaponized. So thinking about, you know, what are they doing to confront any instance of state violence? Um, I will also add that I see a, a real importance in diplomacy, and our country has moved away from a lot of joint diplomatic efforts under President Trump's administration. Um, he saw more as of a zero-sum win-lose game in relations with other countries, whereas I think Gen Z sees a lot more cooperation. And as you mentioned, the UN Human Rights Council is a, a great space for debate and discussion of human rights issues, and it can be very contentious. I'm currently reading all the country statements of the current session, so it can be really uh, a little 
um, again, contentious between countries on human rights issues, but it's also a great space for building cooperation and building alliances with other countries. So um, I, I think in the, in the coming years, there's going to be a renewed focus on diplomacy and efforts of cooperation that will hopefully lead to more trust in our government, in our actions abroad, and in the international system. All right, well, we are, uh, it's 8.30, so we're just about out of time. So let's give our panelists a round of applause for a great discussion tonight. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. And um, I wanted to uh, also uh, let you know that tomorrow the ICFRC is sponsoring a talk by retired Ambassador Charles Ray. He'll be talking about diversity and race in the U.S. State Department. I think it'll be very interesting. Uh, you can get the Zoom link by going to icfrc.org and registering there. Uh, and finally, uh, as a way of thanking our presenters today, as the uh, ICFRC likes to do, uh, we have for each of them what we like to call our coveted ICFRC mug. Uh, Mike, we will make sure that you get yours in the mail. Uh, but again, uh, let's have a big round of applause for all the panelists.